Thank you very much for joining us. I'm John Donvan, host of the Intelligence Squared U.S. Debates, sitting in for Diane Rehm, who is on a station visit to WYPR in Baltimore. Well, Russia is warning the U.S. against intervening in the war in Syria, while thousands of migrants are rescued off the Libyan coast. And the Nobel Peace Prize goes to Colombian President Juan Manuel Santos just days after his country rejected a peace accord with the FARC rebels. Joining us for the International Hour of the Friday News Roundup, Yochi Driesen, he is foreign editor at Vox, Karun Demirzian, reporter at the Washington Post, and Matthew Lee, diplomatic writer at the Associated Press. Thank you all for being here. Good to be here. Thank you. Matthew Lee, as we go to air, uh, we have news that John Kerry, our Secretary of State, is demanding an investigation into Russia's actions in Syria on the grounds of war crimes? Correct. Uh, He was meeting with the French foreign minister just a few, uh, about an hour ago, and uh, made this call uh, to investigate not just uh, the Russian actions, but also Syrian actions, Um, specifically related to the targeting or alleged targeting of civilians in Aleppo, which, which, you know, the the city has been just, uh, the eastern part of it uh, has been pretty much reduced to, to, to rubble over the past couple of weeks. And uh, this is the strongest, though, that we've heard um, uh, from the United States in terms of uh, in terms of some kind of an account- accountability uh, for what's go- been going on there. Karen Demirjian, I mean, it's the strongest both in terms of an indicator of just how bad things are in Aleppo, but also how bad things are in U.S.-Russian relations. Do you give it back up for us a little bit If we go back five weeks ago, (laughs) five weeks ago, the U.S. and Russia had had worked out a a ceasefire agreement and they were talking towards a future of some sort of political resolution. What broke in the meantime? Right. I mean, the the, the theme of the discussions between the United States and Russia was all about coordination and cooperation Mm -hmm. starting this summer, really. And um, everyone had high hopes, or not everyone, but they had high hopes, I guess, that um, that this would lead to a coordinated ceasefire that would basically let them open up a humanitarian corridor to be able to get some aid to these, I think it's about 275,000 people that are left in mm-hmm. eastern Aleppo that are either trying to get out or starving in there, and something had to be done. All very positive. All, all very positive intentions, right? But it never quite came to fruition because there was the ceasefire, the humanitarian aid delivery was contingent on the ceasefire sticking for, I believe, about a week. It didn't happen. And so things started to deteriorate. And then about a week ago, you saw the deterioration accelerate dramatically um, as uh, the United States decided to cut off the coordination with Russia. I mean, we didn't entirely stop talking. Kerry and Lavrov kept speaking, but they, we, we cut off that, that coordinated approach. Um, then a day later or something, I forget the exact chronology, but Russia announced that it was pulling out of this nuclear security arrangement that we've had for decades and decades about um, reducing reducing uh, plutonium stockpiles. And then you see just kind of the tit-for-tat escalate, involving many more issues than Syria, but the general, generally speaking, the umbrella of relations, the gloves are off. Now we're saying war crimes a few days ago. Russia was saying we're not going to play ball with you on major agreements that we've had going forever until you compensate us for all of your uh, sanctions. And, and these are impossible demands basically to the other side, but it tells you that basically this is no longer a happy, let's try to lean towards seeing Kumbaya and joining hands and making this work moment, at least right now. Yochid Driesen, what, what explains to you this breakdown? 
I think that oftentimes when you look at a, a conflict, the side that feels more invested and is willing to do more tends to win. Russia feels more invested. Russia is willing to do more than the U.S. ever has been. Mm-hmm. Russia is likelier to win. I mean, if you take a step back, even another step back, the Obama administration rationale for not intervening has always been if you use force, you won't accomplish anything and you'll get bogged down. Russia has used force. It accomplished a lot. It has not been bogged down. You can argue about whether it's easier to defend a government than topple one. There are all kinds of other factors. But just in cold terms, Russia intervened when Bashar al-Assad was, if not losing, at least roughly at a stalemate. They turned the tide. Bashar al-Assad, by any measure, is now winning. The fall of Aleppo it may not be inevitable, but it's likely to be soon. What Russia and Syria have begun doing, you know, as Karin mentioned, kind of on the diplomatic side, they're effectively carpet bombing what's left of Aleppo. They're using barrel bombs. It's both Russian planes, Russian attack helicopters, Syrian planes, Syrian attack helicopters. So it isn't just the violence resumed. It's that the violence is worse than it's been at any point in the past year. And <clears throat> just a, as a last point, the targeting of civilians is a part of it, but Part of what Kerry is talking about, even more specifically, is the targeting of hospitals and aid workers. And there's absolutely no question that's deliberate. Bashar al-Assad has been piece by piece destroying what's left of the hospital network, the sort of impromptu medical network. Ambulances are being bombed from the air. Doctors are being killed. The last pediatrician is dead. The last surgeon is dead. The last dentist is dead. What strategy is behind that? What's the strategy if, 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 if in any way uh, Assad wants to be able to lead afterwards? What's the strategy in alienating a population so much that you're murdering its doctors on purpose? I mean, it's really bleak, but it's basically starve or submit, or, you know, we will... I'll break you. I'll break you, and I'll break your spirit, right? I'm going to break... If I target hospitals, if I, you know, start... I mean, I believe believe there's allegations of white phosphorus being used, too. Things are just, like, blatantly would be... It's very much out of the Russian uh, Russian playbook in in Chechnya, how they dealt with the, the uprising there, but it's also also very much out of the playbook of Assad, the father, um, who, you know, crushed by going a cru- crushed uprising in Ham- on Hama uh, years and years ago um, by basically obliterating the place. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not, you know, it, it is not unprecedented, unfortunately, in either of the playbooks of, uh, of, of Russia or Syria. Remind us, Matthew, why Russia supports Assad in the first place? Well, there's several reasons. I mean, one one is that they have a small naval base in the, in the uh, Tartus, uh, which is their um, their link to the, the Eastern Mediterranean, which they don't want to give up. But they've also had a longstanding, uh, Russia has had a longstanding relationship with the Assad family. It's always been, uh, you know, kind of their uh, their spot, their uh, their point of influence in, in the Middle East, which has you know traditionally been uh, been an American kind of uh, kind of place with the U.S. relationship with Israel, U.S. relationship with Jordan, U.S. relationship with Egypt and Saudi uh, Arabia. So, um, with those uh, with those alliances, if you will, um, in a bit of disrepair at the moment, particularly the U.S. relationship with Israel, uh, the Russians see a uh, they they see an opening. There's another few elements there that matter too. I mean, Russia has the argument to make that it has concerns about Islamic terrorism in its country as well, and they often draw the line back to. Chechnya and, and the Caucasus, basically the North Caucasus, to make the point of we have to fight, you know, ISIS, et cetera, abroad. But and then one other thing, which I realize, you know, is I guess a little controversial, but um, it, it at least I think can partially explain why Russia gets in on the side of of Assad in this is that uh, Putin doesn't like seeing um, leaders of countries, even if they're rather draconian leaders, toppled. I think that this is an argument that's been used in other places as well. He sees himself in figures like you know Yanukovych in Ukraine and. Mm-hmm. 
he's not exactly the same as Assad in Syria, but there's some, there's some sort of that personal for him, you think? Well, I, I just think that like there's um, there's an perhaps not all the way to you know the the hour of death with with Assad that sort of mm-hmm. thing, not not to that extreme, but um, in general, that's <clears throat> Russia's very very big on the sovereignty argument, um, especially when it comes down to you know a leader that maybe other leaders in the world don't like that much. Yochi Driesen, what, what, what marks the point at which Assad says, okay, I have Aleppo again, it's mine, and what are the implications of that if that happens? So uh, Assad on Thursday offered something that was almost immediately, in, in a very sad way, laughed at by the rest of the world, where he offered effectively an amnesty to, la- to about 1,000 fighters still in Aleppo from the Nusra Front, which is an al-Qaeda-linked group that is actually a very effective battleground group, effectively said, lay down your weapons, leave the city, you'll be safe, and then I'll stop bombing what's left. And no one, I think, in the world who follows this took it very seriously. Uh, Stefan de Mistura, who's the, the U.N. special envoy for Syria, put, put out this kind of dramatic, really vivid appeal. We think of the U.N. as this kind of bloodless organization run by bloodless diplomats. And de Mistura, in this very personal way, said, I will personally go to Aleppo, and I will personally escort the fighters of Nusra out of Aleppo mm-hmm. if you, Russia, and you, Syria, will stop bombing the city. Don't destroy 275,000 people for 1,000 people. I will personally walk them out. And it's an extraordinary moment in this when we think about what that says when you have that level of desperation and sadness by a diplomat. Right. It is very clear that Dimas Dura, the, the, the envoy, is just frustrated beyond belief. It's no, uh, I don't think it's any kind of a secret that he has toyed with leaving the post but has been convinced mm-hmm. to stay on. I mean, it's really kind of, it's a completely thankless job as, and you know, the, his two or three three predecessors now have there been, beginning with uh, Kofi Annan back, way back, you know, four years ago or five five years ago, uh, have all left in complete frustration and uh, and desperation, basically. So yes, it is. Uh, uh, it's a sad state of affairs. We have a website comment from a listener who says, "Give Syria to Assad. At least we can work with him. He is the one person who can be bought off." We have a minute before break. I want to give you each 10 seconds to respond to that thought. Yohid Rizal. Uh, so if you gave sodium pentothal to most of Assad's neighbors, especially the Israelis, they would agree with that 100%. Um, some people are ready to pull them. Don't see an end to the fighting, so some people might agree with that. I think others say, how can how can you at this point do that, given everything that you've been through and how bloody it's been? I would just say that it, there was a point right after 9-11 that uh, we were working with, that the U.S. was working with Assad. And, you know, there's a very famous photograph of Secretary Kerry, then Senator Kerry, having dinner with uh, he and his wife, having dinner with uh, President Assad and his wife. So, it, you know, it's... we forget he was going to be one of the reformers. Hey, exactly. Way back in the day. <laughs> All right. When we come back, we're going to be talking about um, the migrant crisis flaring up again in the Mediterranean. Terrible scenes, terrible scenes from the last few days. Our guests are Yochi Driesen, foreign editor at Vox. Uh, Karen Demirzian, reporter at the Washington Post, and Matthew Lee, diplomatic writer at the Associated Press. I'm John Donvan, and you are listening to The Diane Reem Show. DCS Daily. DCS Daily. DCS Daily. 
It's news, culture, and curiosities. From the district, Tacoma Park, Alexandria, Friendship Heights, Hyattsville, Falls Church, Northeast Washington, D.C., in your inbox every weekday afternoon. DCS Daily. Sign up at dcs.com slash newsletter. dcs.com slash newsletter. Welcome back. I'm John Donvan, host of the Intelligence Squared U.S. Debate, sitting in for Diane Rehm. This is our weekly news roundup on the international front. Our guests, Yoki Driesen, Yoki Driesen, foreign editor at Vox and author of The Invisible Front, and Karen Demirjian, reporter at The Washington Post, Matthew Lee, diplomatic writer at the Associated Press. I want to remind our listeners also that the second presidential debate is on Sunday, Sunday night, and our colleague Robert Siegel will be anchoring live coverage airing on many NPR stations beginning at 9 o'clock Eastern along with live fact-checking at NPR.org. You can join our conversation, and we hope that you will. You can uh, call us at 1-800-433-8850 or send us your email at drshow at wamu.org or join us on Facebook or on Twitter. Um, As we mentioned before the break, um, a new wave of um, migrants actually initially stranded in the Mediterranean this week and rescues carried out by um, the Italians, um, not fully successful. Lots of people ended up drowning. Yochi, why why a sudden surge again in the numbers of people crossing the Mediterranean? Where are they coming from? They're coming from both places you'd expect, like Syria, like some of the other Arab countries, Libya and others that have been hit by just unrelenting violence. And they're coming from Afghanistan in huge numbers, which gets a lot less attention than Syrian refugee. The refugee crisis is often shorthanded to Syrian refugee crisis, when actually, and actually it's much broader. It's Libyan, it's Afghan, it's other countries. Libya is a very, the, it's a very appealing place from which refugees to leave because from it to Italy is a relatively short distance. It's about mm-hmm. 130 miles. So the feeling is if you can make that 130 miles, you, you, you get to safety. Of course, the Mediterranean is dangerous. You've had hundreds die this year, thousands, of, if not tens of thousands in years past. Some of the individual stories this year, this week alone, where you had 11,000 who were saved, are extraordinary. There was one wooden boat, photos of it went, uh, went sort of viral. Yeah, for, it was radio, but describe what that boat looked like. Sure. So you, you had a, a flotilla of boats, but there was one that was a, a wooden boat in particular that was not very big. It was maybe 100 feet, I would say, that had 1,000 people crammed onto it, and this was a wooden boat. You had it's rubber. astounding. They're standing packed shoulder to shoulder from the front, left to right, front to back. It looks some, like a cattle car without a top on exactly. it. Exactly. In some cases, lying down with others lying stacked on top of them. Jeez. I mean, they're, they're absolutely horrifying. On some of these boats, you had mothers, pregnant women, give birth to children on these boats as these boats were making their way across the waves. Some of the boats have tops, as you say, some don't. But this is the level of desperation people have to get out of Afghanistan, to get out of Libya, to get out of Syria, and try to get to, to Europe. And of course, when they get to Europe, the response of many in Europe is, now we're going to send you back. Yeah, Matthew, we have the EU and Afghanistan actually talking about an arrangement right. to send <laughs> refugees from Afghanistan back to Afghanistan, which is essentially back into a war zone. Right, especially now around Kunduz, where the, 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 uh, the situation is, is getting bleaker by, bleaker by the day, the Taliban uh, move on the march again. Um, yeah, it's a really, really bad problem. It was, you know, we said the same thing about a year ago that this was, you know, and people kind of know, how could it ever get worse? Well, it's starting to look like it's getting uh, worse. And let's also remember, it's not just people from these frontline states that that these that the, that are fleeing. You have Eritreans involved here. You have mm-hmm. Somalis. You have uh, Nigerians. It's really just uh, the the whole instability of the Middle East, North Africa, but then parts of sub-Saharan Africa has really um, come, to, come to a head, and that's what we're, we're seeing in all these people fleeing. Karen Demirjian, what does it say 
knowing what we know about the conditions they face crossing, the likelihood of not making it, of drowning, of being abused, and then getting to a Europe that turns them back, what does it say about the situations that they're fleeing in the first place? Are people not aware of what's ahead, or are they fully aware but it's worth a risk that they're willing to take? I mean, they may not be completely aware of every little twist and turn, but I think the desperation that both of both Yohi and Matt just referred to is, is very, very real. I mean, you don't make the decision to flee your home for an uncertain end through, I mean, all of these people that are also coming from countries where it's not just like you walk down the street and hop on the boat and try to cross the Mediterranean. I mean, it, there's a tough journey to even get to that part. I think people, people anticipate a difficult, you know, clawing on for dear life once they get to Europe. But it's clearly worth it to have a hope of having a future. And, I mean, it, it, what they're facing is so bleak. That's, I mean, you saw, saw people describe those conditions on those ships as, like, the equivalent of slave ships. I think I saw one person describe it as. And that's an unfathomable thing if you're not in as desperate a situation as which these people are. And as Matthew just said, last year we were talking about it would never get worse, and now it's getting worse. And what I don't hear from you, from me, from anyone, is any idea of solution to this. It's more. It's it's more that we we have nothing to say. But it's more. It, it's an attempt. Uh, I think what we're seeing is an attempt to manage this crisis. Mm-hmm. And the problem with that is <clears throat> uh, that it really can't be managed without addressing the root cause of why these people are fleeing, which is violence, war. Um, and, uh, you know, ec- severe, severe economic hardship. And it can't be managed better in the interim also without resolving the issues that you have in Europe right now where you have a huge backlash in a lot of countries that are, if not the very first stop, the second stop for a lot of these migrants as they're trying to get to safe haven, mm-hmm. just don't want them. So you've got xenophobia on the rise like crazy, which is helping to fuel some of these deals to send people back. I mean, there was enough international outrage when we were talking at the beginning of the year about deals to send Syrian migrants back to Turkey. That wasn't back to Syria. This is going all the way back Mm. now to Afghanistan that we're talking, and people are swallowing it. I think that there's uh, a belief many people have, listeners, journalists, friends, relatives. We we like the word crisis in a way because crisis implies solution, and it, it implies something temporary. Something happens, it's a crisis, the crisis is resolved, things go back in some ways to what they were. I think when we think about refugees, this isn't a crisis. This is the new reality of the way that much of the world will interact with Europe and much of the world will interact with the United States. Because the things people are fleeing are violence. The things people are fleeing or soon will be fleeing will be climate change. There will be parts of the world that are submerged and people who live in the coastal areas like Bangladesh or Pakistan decide we can no longer live here. It's water shortages, it's food shortages. So this idea of the mass movement of desperate people moving to places that don't want them and can't hold them. This isn't something that if we could just magically think of the silver bullet, yeah. it will be fixed. Yeah. It's not going away. And if you look, just look at the United States, too. I mean, how are we dealing with this? We're having a really knockdown, drag-out fight about Skittles and things like that. Mm. I mean, but really, you know, if there's one bag, bad egg, we have to turn away the entire... I guess the best thing that can be said, and maybe it's the best thing that can be said, is that the Italian Navy went out and pulled most of those people to safety. But that's not saying that much. No, well, there are remarkable things happening in the Mediterranean right now. The Italians, the Greeks, the coordination between the Greeks and the Turks, even who don't even like each other very mm-hmm. much. I mean, the people that are on the actual very front line that is the coast of this are doing um, a pretty impressive job with very limited resources. Um, but just, that's not sustainable. <laughs> How, it doesn't stop there. Yeah. I feel like we should almost give a moment of silence since we are so short of answers. 
The Peace Prize, Nobel Peace Prize, was awarded, Matthew, this week in rather ironic circumstances. Uh, tell us who, who won and what <laughs> well, did you win? Well, it was Rosamund Santos of Colombia, who, you know, about a month ago or just a couple of weeks ago was uh, riding high, had just signed a, the official signing of this peace deal that he had um, negotiated with the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, the FARC. Uh, after, you know, 50 years uh, of that's civil war. That, that's a yes. war that I mean, has it's, all of our lives, that war has been there. A, a, precisely. The longest running war in uh, in this hemisphere, in the Western hemisphere, as well as the longest, pretty much the longest running war in the world. But anyway, they, the deal was signed, a big ceremony in Cartagena. Secretary Kerry went down there, and then he put it up for a, a vote to the Colombian people. And lo and behold, they rejected the deal last weekend La- exactly and uh, so we're in a kind of a uh, an uncomfortable impasse although uh, they they have extended the terms of, of the deal on a temporary basis now uh, including the protection for the the ex gorillas um, it is clear that the Colombian population is deeply deeply divided about this idea right and and not so because not because they support FARC in any way. No, 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 no. But they think it's too lenient mm-hmm. on uh, the terms uh, allow the FARC to, let's say, uh, I think they would say, get away with decades of uh, of, of crime or, or a decade w- without any accountability, it's and a, that is it, an issue. It's a fair it's a fair criticism of the deal, is it not, Yochi Jason? It, it is. I mean, we think about if we were to put it into a U.S. context or in other countries like Israel, it, it might be the equivalent of Israel saying to Hamas. We now have an amnesty. Those of you who planned or carried out suicide bombings, bus bombings, it's forgiven. Let's move forward. There's an interesting element to this that we we wrote about this week where, depending on one's political views here, it it resonates, which is that pollsters in Colombia were embarrassingly wrong. Running up to the vote, as was the case in Brexit, frankly, they said this would pass by 60 to 40 margin, 58 to 42 margin, and it lost. It was close, but it lost. And one of the reasons it lost, pollsters now believe, which is an interesting one, references a point Matt made that this lavish ceremony, this signing ceremony, actually angered many voters. They didn't look at this as, hey, our country did great and the world's celebrating it. They looked at it as, we gave too much. The world is patting us on the back for having given too much. This government did something we don't like and is celebrating it, spiking the football too soon. No. So so half half the Colombian population probably violently, vehemently disagrees with this peace prize going to President uh, Santos, who gets nearly a million dollars, by the way. Right. Well, I mean, it's I, I'm, I'm just dying to know exactly what day the Nobel Peace Prize Committee voted, because I know they vote in October, but I don't know exactly. Because really, there's been so many fits and starts, right? I mean, one, the referendum, not and referendums this year. That's like a whole other topic that we can talk about globally. But And then uh, Santos saying that, okay, the ceasefire is going to end at the end of October. I mean, did they vote before that or after mm-hmm. that? But um, yeah, it's, you know, this is just really interesting, especially when you've got such a high profile deal to think about that element of that big signing ceremony. Because, you know, this is the whole... Uh, science of peace and reconciliation commissions, which happen all over the world, right? There's less attention when it's someplace like northern Uganda, right, where people just kind of have to learn to deal with some of the really horrible stuff that happened. Um, and then in this situation, right, that that's always an element of it. If you want things to kind of calm down, I saw a piece about this week, like there, there has to be a little bit of absorbing injustice on the side of the people who were wronged, right, in order to have the peace reign. But when it's this high profile, when everybody's talking about it, when there's this half century of anger and, you know, it's very difficult to do. 
Let's go to some of our listeners and bring in Frank from Charlotte, North Carolina. Frank, welcome to the Diane Reem Show. Oh, hi. Hi. Okay, I have a question and a comment. Okay, you have one of your persons on your panel keep uh, mentioning that Israel, and the thing is uh, that Israel has an American colonel that was captured off the coast of Gaza in prison right now today that that was arrested, a female, a few days ago. And uh, I don't see why we give Israel anything, okay? And then about Aleppo, the Russians bombing Aleppo, what are we going to do after they shoot down two of our planes? All right, Frank, let me me take the second question. I'm going to come back to your first question for later in the program because we're going to be talking about Israel. Let's get to the second question. Um, Matthew, do you want to take that if uh, Syria shoots down a U.S. plane? Yeah, that would be a... That would be bad, <laughs> to put it, to put it mildly. Um, <clears throat> an even worse scenario, worst case scenario, would be if there is some kind of shooting uh, between the United States and Russia, um, and that is one of the reasons. Uh, or if, of course, if if Russia would decide to come to the defense militarily of any um, Assyrian military target that was hit, that was hit by the United States. Um, and, and this is the main reason why, or one of the main reasons, why there is so much uh, reticence uh, in this administration about actually increasing the inter- intervention that, uh, uh, that so many people are calling for. I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to The Diane Reem Show. Yochi Driesen, let's talk now about Israel, um, U.S. relations. Um, Frank's question was, it it sounded to me like he was asking um, why the U.S., I think he was suggesting that the U.S. gives Israel a pass on a lot of things that it wouldn't give to other countries, a a charge that's often brought up. But at the same time, there's a counter-narrative that U.S.-Israeli relations under the Obama administration have not been at all rosy sweet. And this week, share with us what happened in terms of the new settlement announced outside of Jerusalem. Sure. So two things happened actually in the last couple of weeks that are both worth mentioning. The first is that uh, Israel and the U.S. signed what is the biggest and most lucrative and most uh, just farthest reaching security package in American or Israeli history. It's a 10-year agreement under which Israel will get roughly $4 billion a year to purchase uh, American weapons. There's no deal that the U.S. has with any other country. So for those who believe Israel, which is wealthy and powerful relative to its neighbors, already gets too much. This makes them think they're getting too much still. For those who think Israel is endangered by a rising Iran and endangered by Islamic State, they would look at this and say, hey, this is a great deal. But what happened this week is is extraordinary. First, you had the death of Shimon Peres, where you had both Barack Obama and other American officials, Bill Clinton, travel to Israel. Uh, In the case of Barack Obama, he gave a speech that singled out the Palestinian president, Mahmoud Abbas, who, who also attended the funeral. Mahmoud Abbas was the one leader that Benjamin Netanyahu did not mention by name. So it was very clearly Obama saying, you, Israel, you, Netanyahu, have to do more for peace. Mm-hmm. Right afterwards, Israel announced that it was approving the construction of a new settlement. So not expanding an existing one, but exp- building one new from scratch. That led to what was the longest denunciation I've seen in a written State Department press release about Israel in quite some time. How bad was it? How it harsh was, was it? They, they, everything they could think to, to throw, they threw. They threw the Shimon Peres just died card. They threw the we just gave you security package card. It was just paragraph after paragraph after paragraph. I spoke with the State Department afterwards to just gauge kind of the level of anger and was told that that was a, a draft. There was a draft that was angrier still mm-hmm. of things that were in it and that they just felt 
personally betrayed in some level, that the U.S. had just given this deal, just sent the president to Israel, and the response was new settlement construction. And Karen, re- remind us why the U.S. opposes settlement expansion in the West Bank? Because it kind of undercuts the whole idea that you can never get to a two-state solution, that you, you can have a, 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 the a Palestinian state built out of much of the West Bank slash Gaza and have Israel um, be you know, the, the part that it, everybody recognizes is Israel. This goes back to, you know, all the U.N. resolutions about what the lines are. Are we talking about, you know, 1948 lines, 67 lines? And, and the, the whole um, the whole negotiation is based on these internationally recognized boundaries. And when you have settlement construction behind those lines, it um, slices, upsets, a, slices it, away it, the it territory. Chips away, mm-hmm. It chips away. It kind of like erodes away, I think, actually, at the actual territories that you're talking about, making that conclusion harder. So, Matthew Lee, given that logic and given the United States, U.S.'s strong position against settlement expansion and given the fact that, as Yohi um, set up for us in a very, very embarrassing time, Israel goes ahead and expands mm-hmm. settlements, what, what, what are we to conclude about Israel's take on the U.S.? Well, this current uh, Israeli government is clearly not a huge fan of um, of the Obama administration, even though they were they profess to be, and they have said that they are very grateful and they welcome and they thanked the U.S. for this memorandum of understanding, this ten year, thirty eight billion dollar uh, deal. Um, but they're going to do what they think is in their own national interest and clearly by going ahead with the with with these uh, these projects um, they think that that's in their national interest one of the more interesting lines in this lengthy uh, State Department statement that Yoki was talking about uh, was a line that said that if this goes ahead if this new new construction goes ahead the, the Israelis will be cementing uh, a path to a one state reality in which uh, it is impossible for Israel to retain its character as a Jewish state and be a democracy at the same time. And that suggests that the the administration thinks that not only is Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, not not really committed to a two-state solution, but is actively um, working against one. Okay, more after the break. I'm John Donvan, and you are listening to The Diane Reem Show. Welcome back. I'm John Donvan. You're listening to The Diane Reem Show. We are discussing the week's events on the international horizon. Our guests are Yohi Driesen, who is foreign editor at Vox, Karwan Demirzian, who is reporter at The Washington Post, and Matthew Lee, diplomatic writer at the Associated Press. A few other stories that we haven't mentioned, um, the, the Hurricane, Hurricane Matthew. Um, Matthew slammed into Haiti and um, hit pretty hard. Yeah. Uh, it did. My namesake, Hurricane, unfortunately, I'm rooting for myself to become a t- tropical depression or just a heavy uh, thunderstorm. But, uh, yeah, it really nailed southwest Haiti, death toll, anywhere now, 300 to 500. Um, it, it's 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 a really dismal situation there. Uh, thousands of people left without homes. Uh, and you, you just have to wonder, Haiti has gone through so much over the last uh, decade, even less than a day, obviously more than a decade. But in terms of natural disasters, mm-hmm. it's a country that seems to be uh, a target for them continually. That's the poorest country in the hemisphere. 
and uh, it's just like once they start to recover from one disaster, they get hit again. It's it's somewhat tragic how Haiti's plight slips from consciousness because five years ago it was top of the headlines and churches everywhere, schools were sending people down, and and yet the routineness of of its disasters becomes non-news after a while. It, 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 it certainly does, and 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 that is uh, very unfortunate. Um, one thing that uh, I guess that I hesitate to say be thankful for is that it only hit the, the southwest portion mm-hmm. of it. So uh, further towards uh, further east towards the Dominican Republic was largely spared. But still, this is a country that has gone through more than its fair share of. horrific natural natural disasters. One of the organizations that is there through its sub-organizations like World Health Organization, et cetera, is um, the United Nations. And uh, Yochid Reason, we have a new um, Secretary General of the United Nations. We do. We have a a Portuguese, a former Portuguese prime minister, actually beloved within the UN, named uh, Antonio Guterres. I don't think most most of us know much about him. Uh, I I think that's very likely. Um, He is. Although one wonders how many, how much of people have people known in the past about past UN secretary generals before they became. It's true. I feel like Kofi Annan kind of had a global celebrity that the current UN secretary Ban Ki Moon most definitely does not have. He's Mm -hmm. a a very polite South Korean that can quite literally fade into a corner of the room without people noticing. Um, Antonio Guterres. Is different. This is someone who is both beloved within the UN. He's been the High Commissioner for Refugees and was seen as having done a very good job. Is also beloved in some ways outside the UN because when he was Prime Minister of Portugal, he pushed through a really interesting law that decriminalized all drugs. Portugal was fighting a heroin epidemic. It had marijuana problems. It had cocaine problems. He pushed through a full decriminalization. Uh, the result that of was which in the is, 90s, was this it? was in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Portugal right now, its uh, drug addiction rate is five times lower than that of its neighbors. HIV infections are down by about 95%, which they believe is linked to the fact that you don't have the same sharing of needles. But you took someone who, the current UN Secretary General, who was seen as kind of ineffectual, soft-spoken, and weak, you put in someone who is high-profile, willing to speak out, and very much a popular figure. What's interesting, of course, is we often think of the UN Secretary General as being this very powerful world leader, Mm -hmm. and he or she is not. They don't run the UN. They don't run an army. They don't run peacekeeping. They can advise the Security Council and can advise the General Assembly, but their actual power is very limited. We spoke to someone this week who pointed out that the Secretary General is much more secretary than general, which is punchy but also very accurate. Um, Full disclosure, um, about 10 years ago, the last time they were picking a UN Secretary General, before I was a journalist, I was an intern at the UN, and I remember the whole selection process of Ban Ki-moon, and it's just really interesting to see how different the United Nations is approaching this than they did 10 years ago because so? well just because it's you know it, it took longer first of all the first time the, 10 years ago um, but also the the fact that it's it's making a much more gutsy move um, I think with Guterres because he does have opinions about things because he has been in the middle of some of the biggest crises that have been or I know we talked about how the word crisis is not exactly right for refugees right it's more of a reality but he has been in the thick of that versus a safer choice who's kind of on the outside and I mean I think Ban Ki-moon came in talking a lot about restructuring the secretariat and you know HR things more so than the actual you know public missions and, and, and the big global crises that the UN was going to have to tackle. So it's just interesting to see the switch. Um, and then the other thing I just mentioned is that uh, the celebrity status of UN Secretary Generals, it's interesting because they're usually not celebrities before they come in. So this is even a little bit different in that way. And some of the most powerful UNSGs have been global nobodies who just happen to be a hell of a lot stronger than anybody thought by the time they took over that top seat. So it's always a little bit of a, let's see what's going to happen this time. But I think we know a lot more about the entity than we usually do. 
The, um, the one disappointment with Guterres, from some people's point of view, is that this had been the year that a lot of people had hoped or <clears throat> expected or at least hoped that a woman would be named uh, right. to the top spot. And uh, there were some... Right, no. Correct. And, uh, nine secretaries general, mm-hmm. uh, that's sec- nine secretaries general, nine mm-hmm. men. And there had been um, a, a, a movement of support to try and get a woman into the in, in, into that top job. It did not happen, obviously. The Philippines, um, its colorful president um, with some sometimes colorful language this week has <laughs> suggested um, suggested that he might need to tell President Obama to quote-unquote go to hell. Um, we're chuckling and maybe we shouldn't be. What, what is, how serious is the acrimony, how meaningful is the acrimony that we're hearing from President Duterte? So I think you just kind of captured the whole problem with the Philippines right now in your in your question because some of it is hard not to laugh at and then some of it is very serious. Amazingly, his comment about how Obama should go to hell was the less offensive of his comments this week. The more offensive when he said that Hitler killed three million Jews. Obviously, the number was wrong. Uh, I'm proud to say that I will kill three million drug dealers. Uh, so likening oneself to Hitler is usually not something politicians like to do, uh, but he proudly did it. And then, of course, had to apologize when he realized how uh, offensive and idiotic it was. Um, with the Philippines, there, there is a serious issue. The Philippines is a country that is on the front lines of the pushback against China and the South China Sea. They're one of the countries where they're seeing Chinese ships get closer and closer. They're seeing China grab more and more of a sea that they feel they have the rights to, uh, to use. They're the country that actually took China to the Hague. The Hague <coughs> ruled in favor of the Philippines. China... Mm-hmm said, we want to abide by it. The Philippines said, we have a treaty with the United States. Of course, the United States must have our back on this. And the United States has winked, nodded, and basically made clear that that they don't. And what Duterte and and his government have been saying, once you get past the kind of go to hell and called Obama, other names uh, that may not be NPR appropriate, beyond that is (laughs) we expected our ally, the United States, to stand with us against China. They haven't. So we're willing to unshackle ourselves, which Mm -hmm. was a word they used from the United States, and move closer to China. So there is a a very big kind of geostrategic issue. And it's a a point that has come up in in other questions. There's a lack of trust in President Obama. There's a willingness to challenge him, a willingness to insult him, a willingness to push him near the end of his term that may not have been there one year ago, four years ago, eight years ago. What's kind of strange about this is is that um, it's really, it was not uh, self-apparent that this this split had to happen or was, was definitely going to come. I was with Secretary Kerry in Manila not just about two months ago. Uh, they had a very friendly meeting, uh, Secretary Kerry did with President Duterte, and a good meeting with the foreign minister, who was the one who used the unshackling line. Um, and there was really, uh, I've been told, there's no indication that the private conversation was anything like the, or included anything like the rhetoric that we're hearing right now from, from the president, who just seems to determined um, to make things very difficult for the United States to continue. I, I'm wondering, Karun, if I'm connecting the dots incorrectly by saying that in the course of this conversation, we have heard about Israel slapping the U.S. in the face with the settlements. We have talked about Russia making its choices in Syria without due regard to U.S. positions and intentions in Syria. And now we have the president of the Philippines insulting the president of the United States. Is there, is, is there a thread of disrespect that is unusual and relatively unprecedented? Um, I or, mean, or am I... If you want to draw the thread, I would say that 
maybe at a different point in time it'd be unusual, but we are in October 2016 right now. Mm -hmm. And what is it, October 7th, which means that we are, well, probably, I'm not good at counting exactly, but we are just about a little over a month away from you think the it's election. About, about being a lame dog. I, I just think in general you see a lot of big world simmering crises turn. I mean, you ha had the, the, the Operation Castled, was it, in Gaza, that kind of exploded during the period in between presidents mm -hmm. in early 2009, or the very, very, very end of 2008. I forget exactly which day it started. Um, you, you see shifts happening in, in, in global power plays, basically. <laughs> and when better to do that when there isn't going to be an immediate s sustained consequence, I should say, from the current administration. Now, I mean, if Hillary Clinton wins different story, perhaps. But right now, this is the most questioning, vulnerable period that we're in for other people to make at least a gesture, even if they're not going to follow all the way through, even if the Philippines does not rip up that aid contract and still takes our money and just wanted to get its, you know, to be able to let its uh, vent, vent spleen a little bit. Really. But really, this is the moment to vent your spleen at mm, the exactly. United States because the consequences are limited. Let's not forget North Korea in this, which has so far this year and, uh, you know, conducted a, a number of nuclear tests and, and really testing um, the the resolve of both the United States and, 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 and the international community more generally. Uh, let's turn to uh, some listeners again and bring in Pat from Houston. Pat, welcome to the Diane Reem Show. Uh, hey, yeah, thanks for taking my call, sure. John. Love the show. Um, uh, yeah, so my question is, does the panel think that Assad would be, wouldn't he, wouldn't he be a better alternative than, like, ISIS? He's secular, he protects the minorities, and also maybe some countries aren't ready for democracy. I mean, look at Iraq, look at Libya. Don't, you know, some countries haven't evolved to that level yet. And I'll take my uh, answer off the air. Thank you so much, and hit him with the high. <laughs> Why don't you take that, Yogi? Uh, yeah, to the second part, um, I, I spent a bunch of years living in Iraq where it was then and is now an open question of whether democracy can operate. I don't think it's a question of culture. I don't think it's a question of some, some countries, some ethnicity, some religion simply can't do it. But I do think it's a question about democracy isn't simply voting. Democracy is all the things that surround voting. It's, it's a justice system and it's laws that people follow, which many countries don't have. You know, to the first question... There's a reason why Bashar al-Assad is popular in some swaths of his country, even though Alawite, his particular ethnic group, is a teeny percentage. It's about 12 percent. Sunnis trust him. Christians trust him. Kurds trust him because they worry that the alternative is ISIS, the alternative is people being beheaded in the streets. You know, Assad is someone that multiple generations of U.S. leaders, multiple generations of Israeli leaders, whether it's the father and now the son, have trusted and have felt was somebody they could work with. He has shown himself not to be barbaric at a level that his father never did. But I think there is still that flicker of he's better than the alternative, which is a horrifically depressing thought, but probably an accurate one. I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to The Diane Reem Show. Do you want to jump in on that thought, Matt? Yeah, I would just say this is the Russian position uh, 100%. Uh, they, they don't necessarily – they're not necessarily in love with Assad, that he ha is the only person uh, – or that he himself is the person that has to lead. But they look around and they say, well, what is, what is the alternative? And they've had that opinion for, uh, for many years now. Let's bring in um – Chappelle, I'm reading your name and trying to pronounce it correctly. Chappelle in Indianapolis, you can tell me if I got your name correctly or not. You got it right. Oh, terrific. It. Thank you. Um, what's your question or comment? Um, earlier in the show, um, someone stated that uh, Russia has met its objectives in Syria and it's not bogged down. My question is, how do we know they're not bogged down or about to be bogged down? And if they are bogged down, isn't it better that Russia's bogged down in that area, losing blood and treasure? instead of U.S.? 
Carol? Um, I don't think Russia's entirely met its objectives. Otherwise, it would have an incentive to stop fighting, which it's not. It seems to keep accelerating and the type of attacks that it's doing. Um, and I think that when we were talking about being bogged down versus not being bogged down, I think that the United States had predicted that Russia would get stuck in a quagmire, right? And I think that what people are saying is that, well, if it is, it's a very sustainable quagmire because Russia's not hemorrhaging so much money that it's got to run out to protect its interests. It clearly doesn't think that it's losing. It's clearly improving its position and and Assad's position in the process. And the argument that the caller made is something that you've heard I think I, I think Donald Trump even made this argument of, like, why should it be our problem, basically? Why don't we just let the Russians have Syria and let them deal with the mess, and that's fine? Which is an argument that you could make. I mean, it puts a lot of um, people's lives in the, the crosshairs of what's going to happen, and we have, you know, invested at least a lot of political capital and, and, you know, money as well in trying to make sure that we don't completely just wash our hands of mm-hmm. Syria. But the other thing is that, you know, borders do matter for that country, but they, it's not like one thing sticks to one country there. So if you want to say, okay, well, let's just leave Syria entirely, you're going to be talking about the same thing with Iraq, Russia and Iran are allies. Everything, one thing connects to another, and it's very difficult to say, well, we're just going to not touch that one, but it's okay. We'll be able to maintain control of everything then else. Then let's remember Turkey in here. Oh, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's huge. Yes. Let's bring in uh, Paul from St. Louis. Paul, welcome to the Diane Rehm Show. Thank you. Uh, I heard today that uh, the Russians are moving in the direction of a presence in both Cuba and Vietnam. And I was wondering what your consideration is about the the broadest uh, implications of this are. It it is true. There was a there was a a hearing in the Duma, I believe, uh, earlier in which a senior Russian military official answered a question about uh, whether the Russians were whether he was thinking about um, returning to bases that uh, that the former Soviet Union had in in Cuba and Vietnam. And he said it is under consideration, uh, which is true. But there isn't any immediate move, I don't think, to to do that. It would entail a very large investment uh, of money that, uh, frankly, if if in fact Putin wants to stay in Syria, and I would note that the Duma today voted again, you can call it a rubber stamp or whatever, but to uh, keep the their base, their air base uh, in, in Syria open indefinitely. Um, so if he is going to be investing this much uh, treasure, uh, not to mention the the blood part of it, in Syria, I think that in the short term, it's probably unlikely that we're going to see the Russians go back to Cameron Bay or to to, uh, Havana. Um, I think that that's a really important point to make. I mean, Russia doesn't have unlimited resources. But the other thing that I think is just, you know, uh, interesting to, to note is that, you know, there's there's a reason to bring up the Cuba. There's a reason to bring up Vietnam. And that's because one of the best arguments and tools Russia has is the emotional one. I mean, you can't say Cuba and Vietnam that we're going to go back there without having that, you know, make people in the West go, oh, we remember those places and what they meant, you know, in the mm-hmm. 60s and the 70s. Um, and Russia's making a bid right now to be a global power of the same stature as the United States. And really, this has been, in many ways, Syria, it, Ukraine, everything that you want to talk about has been trying to bid up its authority back to what it used to be back in the, you know, not exactly like the Soviet Union, but at least having the stature that, you know, Russia feels like it's owed. And so to say things like Cuba and Vietnam, you know. For our final (laughs) question in our final minute, maybe you can each take 10 seconds to answer. How closely do you feel, Yohi Drozen, the the world is watching our election campaign? I think more closely than any election in in my lifetime. When there have been foreign leaders visiting, there's been an opportunity to interview them. Usually now it's been at some point them saying, enough, let me ask you about Donald Trump. Let me ask you about the election, Mm -hmm. which I've never experienced before. 
Completely. Um, you see it covered that people in uh, foreign countries are covering the election in almost as much real time as we are, which really? is very telling. Yeah, yeah. It's fun to look at foreign news websites, actually, when the stuff is happening in the United States, because they're really right with us, pretty much. Um, and then also, it's you talk to, I mean, I am often covering Congress, right? You talk to members after they come back from CODELs, and no matter where they've come back from, they are getting inundated with questions about what it, are you guys it, doing? It is a global preoccupation right now. So the world is our news and we're their news. <laughs> all right. Thanks very much for all of you participating in this weekly roundup of the world news. I want to thank Yoki Driesen, foreign editor at Vox, Carolyn Demirjian, the reporter at the Washington Post, and Matthew Lee, diplomatic writer at the Associated Press. Thanks to all of you who asked questions and those of you who didn't get to for waiting online for such a long time. I'm John Donvan, and you are listening to The Diane Reem Show. The Diane Reem Show is produced by Sandra Baker, Denise Couture, Rebecca Kaufman, Lisa Dunn, Alexandra Boti, Danielle Knight, Erica R. Hendry, and Allison Brody. The engineer is Alex Drewenskis.